I had the brain surgery, thought that that was going to fix it, It'd be one and done and it's over, and it ended up didn't really fix my problems. And then I started suffering even more from more headaches. Um, ended up getting another more MRIs and more CAT scans and more testing and um, they had discovered that I had um, an aneurysm and it was sitting um, just at the base of my brain. You know, there was a chance when they went in to fix the aneurysm that, you know, that it would explode and I had to sign papers that it's okay. <laughs> you know, felt like I was signing my life away. And all I could think about was my children and my husband not having me in their life. And at that point, I didn't trust God. I, I was terrified of death. My brother-in-law calls me and said, Reed's gone. He's gone. He's gone. Reed's gone. And he's, I've never heard a human being sound like that. It was the most, I'll never get it out of my head. Uh, it's just the most soul-ripping tone. Reed's gone. If you would have told me before this happened that, you know, some crazy man would kill my father and my nephew and that I wouldn't be angry and that I wouldn't be enraged um, and I wouldn't want to seek vengeance, you know, kill him myself. I, I wouldn't have believed it. Uh, but as soon as I got that call from my, from my brother-in-law, I'm pretty sure it was right then, and it may have been even before, Heather grabbed my hand and just started praying. And when we got home, I immediately wanted to call Mike. I didn't really know very well. I mean, he's my pastor, but I, I, you know, we really didn't have any sort of a personal relationship, you know, but I immediately wanted to call him. And I remember standing in the kitchen, leaning against the counter, and, and Heather came up next to me, and I had the phone on speaker, and he said, let me just pray for you all. My mind scrambled. And my first response was, no, no, not my baby. God, what are you doing? Um, you're big enough to stop this. You know, you know everything. You knew this was going to happen. Why didn't you stop it? Are you not powerful enough to stop it? Do you really care? I mean, if you knew, why didn't you, why didn't you stop? Who are you, God? A lot of bad days. Um, I have a physical, I guess you could call deficit. I've learned to work with it now. But I have a panic disorder. It came even before Amanda's, um, when I went through the divorce. But after Amanda died, it went into full force, where my panic disorder and depression um, I would lose my breath and I would shake as violently as a grand mal seizure. My eyes would roll in my head, I couldn't speak. I lost everything. I lost my health, my my job, my my friends, my church. Days were not good. 
I had a great husband and a few friends, but mostly I had my God. You know, we know, we all know life is messy and painful. We live in a tension every day. Every day we wake up, we, we anticipate it's going to go a certain way. It's going to filter out a certain way and that God's going to cause it all to be a beautiful bow in a package. We subconsciously think that until we've lived enough days that we realize that life isn't like that. There is the God that we expect, the days that we expect, and how God's supposed to, supposed to orchestrate them. But then over here, there's the God of reality. And it doesn't typically work out always the way we planned it. We, we, we don't plan for our, for, our, for our dad to take our nephew to the Jewish center and some anti-Semitic guy in Kansas City drive by, pull out a gun, and shoot them. There's a conflict there between it was God's will for, for Will's dad to go to this concert and to take re and to do this beautiful thing as a family, but it wasn't God's will for this gun-toting anti-Semitic guy to pull out what's not right about that. It's not right. So when, when God's will and man's will collide, sometimes you wonder, God, why didn't your will win? It was God's will, I believe. I have to believe. For Holly and, and Amanda to go to camp, but to be on two different buses. And why, God, why that? And, and you heard the emotion, the intensity of, 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 of that in that story of how, is this suppo- how am I supposed to reconcile this, make sense of this injustice? That a driver would show up drunk and or drunk on drugs and and uh, under rest and 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 that he would get behind the wheel that Amanda's bus and that that would happen. It, it just doesn't seem right when life ends up like that. When when a couple comes down the aisle and they they pledge their vows that we will love and we will cherish and and we will forsake all others till death us do part and that we will be together forever. And then one of the couples, one of the, one of the individuals in the couple decides that maybe that doesn't apply to them and they go off and they veer off and they play around, mess around, whatever you want to call it, and they take off. And they appear as if they go off into some kind of new, new bliss of honeymoon and, and, and promise of, of, a, of a better life. And this one's left holding all the broken pieces. And the person who eats healthy and exercises day in and day out and does what's right for the body is the one who gets that terminal cancer. What's not, this is not right. And how do we put all of this together? And I can give you a real beautiful Christian cliche that would make you nauseous at your stomach. But in reality, life isn't fair. And I'm going to even say this, and it may disturb with some of you in kind of a place of your heart that you would never vocalize it, so I'm going to vocalize it for you, but you've thought it. God isn't fair. And sometimes God disappoints us. 
And when God disappoints us, what happens, disillusionment moves in because it's like, okay, God, I thought you were this and you could do all things, but yet this has happened and you allow this to happen, disillusionment moves in. And when disillusionment moves in, right behind it comes despair. And when you reach that point of despair, it's only a few seconds away that depression moves in. And when depression moves in, everything changes. The skies all go black. Life all becomes this distorted mess. And you try to make sense of it all. And depression, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I know a lot of people in this room, either at a season, at a time, in a day, or maybe for a long extended period of time to the point that you needed to get help literally from professionals, but you've experienced depression. Some of y'all right now are living in a cloud, and as I'm talking, the message is radiating inside of you because you're saying every bit of what you're saying, disillusioned, life isn't fair, God isn't fair, all of that is so true. George Fox was talking about his depression. He said it like this. It's it's when it was day, I wished it was night. And when it was night, I wished it was day. It's the old idea of I can't live in this skin. I can't live in this time. I can't live in space. But at the same time, I want to live, but I can't live. Depression costs the workforce across the United States $44 billion every year in lost wages. Depression is huge. And depression is not just for those who are far from God, but the Christians are exempt from it. That somehow we live the good life and because we walk in the, in the footsteps of Jesus that we're not going to experience depression. Listen to the words of the choir master in the Psalms. In fact, I almost shared from this passage this week in this message, but it was between Ruth or Psalms 42. And I, de- I decided I'm going to go with Ruth, but I, I've got to share with you this verse because I think you see the choir master struggling with depression whenever he says, my tears have been my food day and night. Those who go through the depression cry so much they can't cry any longer. My soul is cast down within me. And again, I could give some kind of trite prose and some kind of beautiful, some kind of beautiful homily and try to say that everything's going to be just wonderful and honky dory in your life in the end. But sometimes it just doesn't work out the way we thought it would and the way we planned it would and the way we dreamed it would. And our dreams become shattered We're going to talk about a story of Ruth. In fact, be finding in your Bibles. You'll have to go to the Old Testament, way back in the Old Testament. You'll find the first five books of the Old Testament. You'll find uh, those were written by, uh, by Moses. And then you go to the book of Joshua. After the book of Joshua, you'll find the book of Judges. And then tiny book back there, just four chapters, you'll find the book of Ruth. That's where we're going to be. And so be finding that, and we'll be there in a moment. There are two books in all of the Bible that are dedicated, uh, that are, have, a, have a name of a woman and that are dedicated the story and the narrative of this woman. One of those being Esther and one of those being Ruth. Ruth begins with a famine but ends with a birth. Esther begins with a feast but ends with the death of 75,000 people. So the stories are quite contrasting. The book of Ruth tells the story of, of a Gentile who married a Jew and became 
and incestuous to the Messiah. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. You can jot that down and look at it later on. The story of Elimelech, when Elimelech takes his family because there's a famine that comes to the land, and he moves north to a place called Moab. Now, you got to understand what was going on in the land at this time. This is the time of the judges. It is the darkest period consistently in Israel's history. They lived by a motto that evidently was probably printed on T-shirts, that was probably on the walls, that was probably out there, that everyone lived by this motto because you find it again and again in the book of Judges. You find it in Judges 17, 6, 18, 11, 19, verse 1, 21, 25, and it's this statement, every man did what was right in his own eyes. That was the motto of the day, relativism. Moral relativism was the motto of the day, not far off from our own day. Everyone just does what is right in their own eyes. Whatever works for you, works for you. What works for, if it didn't work for you, that's fine. Eliah, Elimelech took, takes his family and he moves them north, just about 50 miles from Bethlehem where they live. Bethlehem, interestingly enough, means house of bread. But Bethlehem was under a famine. There was no bread in Bethlehem. So Elimelech moves his family, Naomi, two sons, moves them north about 50 miles to a place called Moab. Now Moab is where the Moabites lived. And Moabites were not favorable people in the Old Testament. I know I'm giving you a lot of history. I love history. Please don't die right now a slow death because I'm giving you some history. You got to understand the context. All right. The Moabites, they were not good people. In fact, they were not to associate with the Jews and the Jews with them. You find different places in history. The Moabites were actually descendants of Lot in an incestuous relationship that he had. In Judges 3, the Moabites invade Israel and they ruled for 18 years over Israel. The Moabite women in Moses' day were uh, seduced the Jewish men into immorality and idolatry. 24,000 people die. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 25. So the Moabites were not exactly favorable people, but when you're hungry, you do what you need to do. And that's exactly what he did. He takes his family and they move to Moab. This is not uncommon. Abram did it whenever in Genesis chapter 12, he moved his family down to Egypt. It's very common. He was not doing it long-term. They were only doing it for short-term because there was a famine in the land. You got to go where there's food. But then one tragedy leads to another tragedy. Elimelech moves the family there, but Elimelech dies. All of a sudden now, it's Naomi raising two boys. Tragedy in the land, but it doesn't end there. Because Ruth's boys grow up and they marry Moabite women, but then her two boys die. And all of a sudden, now here's the story that we're entering into. All of a sudden, tragedy on top of tragedy on top of tragedy. Let's begin reading in Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. That's bad enough, right? If you've ever lost your job, there's a famine in your house. All of a sudden, the budget gets really tight. All of a sudden, movies go away. Out to eat goes away. There's a famine in the land. If you do not replace that income quickly, there will be a famine in your house. That's exactly what was happening in Elimelech's house and in the land of that day. And the man of Bethlehem in Judah went 
to sojourn. Didn't go forever. Wasn't, didn't leave his, his property was mortgaged. His, his, his plan was to come back to Bethlehem. But at this time, he needed to go to the land of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of the two sons, Malon and Chilon, uh, something like that. We'll go with that. And, and they were Epaphrodites. Uh, and that, they were from the, the, the tribe of Ephraim from Bethlehem in Judah. And when they went to the country of Moab, they remained there. But Elimelech and the husband of Naomi died. And she was left with two sons. Now, some of you all know what this is like if you're a single mom in this room today. But now compound that by about threefold. And the reason I say threefold is because she's a woman in a man-dominated world. She's a woman not in her homeland with, with her family systems are around to help take care of her. She's now a, in a Moabite land, so she is an outcast. There's so many things working against Naomi, but the shoes continue to fall. These took Moabite wives in the name uh, of uh, of one was Orpha. Now, that's not Oprah. That's Orpha, all right? And the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. And both Mahalon and Chelon died. So that, I want, you to just, I want you to just zero in on this next phrase. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her two husbands. All of a sudden, there's three lonely widow ladies and three Jewish graves in a pagan land. Would you somehow, inside of your emotional intelligence, would you muster up enough empathy to enter vicariously into Naomi for a little while? Would you enter into her story and just feel with her, what is she going through? What is she feeling? How is she emoting? What has she experienced in the death of her husband, in the death of her two sons? All sense of security, because money is gone, famine is in the land, family connection's gone. I mean, everything is gone wrong in Naomi's life. And she's got two daughter-in-laws that are now, they're together, and we're all trying to keep things afloat. How do you make it through that? How do you make it through such tragic moments that come upon us that we don't invite, we're just trying to make ends meet? We don't go out looking for us, not because Elimelech was living in sin. Nobody can find anywhere in this passage where Elimelech was living in sin. So how is it that, that good people have such horrific things happen to them, and how do you see through it? Because here's what happens to me. Depression moves in. Dark clouds move in. Thunder moves in. Darkness alone, loneliness moves in. Whenever you have to bury your own children, think about that. I can remember when my, my uncle died of leukemia and my grandmother, who was a very non-emotional person, she was a great lady, Nana was what we called her, and Nana um, told me with tears in her eyes, the only time I ever can remember her crying, and she told me, a mother is never meant to bury their own child. And that has forever stuck with me. A mother is never meant to bury their own child. The emotional wrenching that goes on inside of a person. How do you see? How do you see to move and live another day? How do you see through your pain? 
What do you focus on? Do you focus on the, the pain? Do you focus on the clouds? Do you focus on the betrayal? Do you focus on the, on, on the hurt? Where, where do you focus? Or do you somehow try to peer through it, try to rise above the depression, darkness? How do you see on the other side to gain hope? I want to learn from a lady named Naomi, primarily Ruth some, but I want to learn from Naomi on how she did it. There are three, four visuals that I want to see in four chapters, and we're just going to skip across. So I'm going to give you the disclaimer now that there is injustice in this message. I will not do the entire book of Ruth justice, so you go home and you do your own study. But let me show you real quickly in a high-level views what Naomi did to get through this dark cloud of, uh, of despair. One is she saw, looked for, and you should as well, and see and say your emotions. Honestly, don't give it the Christianese. Don't try to whitewash it. Pain hurts. And when God of all gods lets you, you heard even in Leodra, I didn't trust God anymore. You heard in Holly the fact that, you know, God, why didn't you fix this? Why didn't you prevent this? How in the world? You, you can hear in that exactly what you're going to hear from the voice of Naomi. Emotions are real. And emotions are the voice of your soul. Listen to them. Listen to verse 19 of chapter 1. So the two of them, the two of them is, is Ruth and Naomi. Orpha stays in Moab. We never hear her again. And Ruth and Naomi, they stay side by side with each other, locked arms. So the two of them went to uh, went until they came to Bethlehem. That's the old hometown. And when they came to Bethlehem, notice what happens. The whole town was stirred because of them. Now, Bethlehem, you think, is a big town. It's actually not that big in comparison to Jerusalem or some of the other towns. To this day, it's not a humongous town. But here comes in Naomi. She's been gone for 10 years, but she's aged 20. And they ask her the question, Is that Naomi? Are you Naomi? Now, notice her response. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. What we're going to find now is her words and her soul speaking. For the almighty Shaddai, Hebrew word Shaddai, dealt bitterly with me. I went away full that she has already forgotten the famine that she was living in. But it's amazing how whenever you, whenever you forget the past and how rough it was in the past, and she says, I went away full, but I've come back empty. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord, Yahweh, both times there, Yahweh word, the most holy name for God, Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty Shaddai again has brought calamity Upon me. Please listen and hear the emotions that are coming from the very heart of Naomi. I'm bitter. Her name, Naomi, means pleasant. She said, Are you Naomi? No, I'm not Naomi. Call me Mara, means bitter. 
What happens whenever you go through this, this, this seasons of like this, you, you sometimes can go from being a pleasant person to a bitter person. And you might not even know it. You might not even know the bitterness, the anger, the resentment that you are exuding and that you are emoting. Naomi knew it. She said, I'm bitter. And then you begin to see how and who she is bitter at. And it is not at her husband, Elimelech, for taking them there. It's not at her sons for playing wild and crazy and they end up getting themselves killed. We don't know why they passed away, any, any of the three. But what happens here is they rail off these emotions. I am empty. I'm empty. I don't have anything. I don't have anything to give. I am stripped down. God's against me. He says, Yahweh has testified against me. God is tearing me down. Almighty God, listen to the, listen to the words, Shaddai, Almighty God, the God who could have stopped this, the God who has the power to stop all calamities, he is causing this calamity. Do you hear the emotion in that? So what I'm saying to you today, please, 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 please hear me. What we need to do is not whitewash over our emotions, not ignore our emotions. We need to own them. I am angry. I am bitter. I am, I, I am frustrated with God. I am this, this. I am a bundle of emotions. I hurt God. I mentioned a few weeks ago the common process of dealing with stressors in our life and pain in our life is fight or flight, but I encourage you to face. Face the pain. Don't go looking for it, but face it. Warren Wiersbe said it like this, we endure, we escape, or we enlist them. So enlist, face, whatever the pain is. If the pain is there, don't run from it. Don't medicate from it. Don't try to soothe it away, but lean in and allow the pain to shape you. She was able to articulate down to four succinct statements. This is what I feel. This is how I hurt. This is what I think of God. For some of us, we need to be really honest with our emotions. Some of y'all were teenagers. God, God moved your family across the country. And now you're in a place where there's bullies around you and you've lost all your friends and you're angry at your parents. I get it. Some of you are dealing with infertility. You've tried everything, done everything. You don't know anything else to do. You've talked to all the doctors. You've got all these consultations and there's still no baby. And you're living in that pain and you're seeing everyone else around you grow, their families. The pain that we feel, be honest with it. See it and say it. Don't run from it. You think, Mike, what, is it, what good does that do? Why can't I medicate it? Why can't I push it down? I don't say medication doesn't have its place, but what happens is sometimes what we do is we run to the medication instead of looking at the pain. Larry Crabb in his book, Shattered Dreams, actually, and a tremendous book I encourage you to read, it actually runs parallel. Larry Crabb is a counselor, and he writes this book drawing from the life of Naomi from the book of Ruth. And he makes this statement. I want you to listen closely to it. People find some way to deaden their pain. Never discover the desire for God in all its fullness because we just quickly deaden the pain. They rather live for relief and become addicts to whatever provides it 
The function of pain is to carry us into the inner recesses of our being that wants God. We need to let soul pain do the work by experiencing it fully. Naomi could articulate her pain. She saw her pain. She got her pain out there. Number two, when we look, we need to look for God. We need to look for God's never-ending goodness, never-failing goodness. I know that's hard when you're in the cloud of desperation, when you're in the cloud of disillusionment, when you're in the cloud of, of depression. It's really hard to see God because the storm is just right there. But I want you to not miss this about Naomi. Even though she was saying, Almighty has failed me, Yahweh has done this, I went full and now I've come back empty. Even though, even though, even though, you see that she never gives up on Yahweh God. She may not understand what's going on. She may not get it. She may not agree with it. She may not like it. But she never gives up on God. Chapter 2 now. We look at chapter 1. Let's look at chapter 2. Before we go there, some of y'all are like this. Some of y'all are like this because you are right now living in this unfair world. You're living in an unfair situation. You're like the people in the book of Hebrews where they did not receive the things that were promised. And in that injustice, you can't see God. Here's a life principle for you. God isn't fair, but he's good. God isn't fair, but he's good. You think, well, Michael, well, what do you back up the whole God isn't fair thing. Read Matthew 20 this week as a devotional. Read about the parable that he tells of, uh, of people who go out into the vineyard to work. Some work all day, a 12-hour day. They get paid. Some work a half day. They get the same pay as the people who worked a full day. They had people even going out and they worked even less, a three or four-hour shift. They got the same pay as the people who worked a half a day, the same people who worked a full day. That's not fair. So if you wait for the world to be fair, get ready, you're going to be disappointed. But if you wait for God to be good and you see the fact that God is good and he's constantly good, even with the people who don't deserve it, he's going to be good. He's going to be good. He's going to take care of him. We've got to just look for his goodness, not for the fairness that this world is not going to offer us. So the story goes on and we introduce a new character, Boaz. Boaz comes on the scene because Ruth is the young one. She goes out and looks for a job. As she goes out and looks for a job, it's barley season. It says in chapter one, at the end of chapter one. So she goes out to look for barley and, and to get a job. And she runs into this guy named Boaz. She doesn't know the connection. She's a Moabite. Remember? She's not, she's not from Bethlehem. She meets this Boaz guy. He's smitten. All right. You want to see a love story? Read the book of Ruth. It's all this tragedy, but it's also a love story that comes through. So she sees, uh, uh, Boaz sees her, she sees both. He puts her to work, works right next, as close so he could see her, right next to his, his working women. He, she, he gave her a job in the best field. It was just this beautiful story uh, of, of work that plays out. When she goes home that night, she's given an ephod, an ephod of grain to take home. Now, I had to look up what an ephah was. This is in chapter 2, verse 17. But it's three-fifths of a bushel. That meant nothing to me. I don't know if it meant anything to you. So I kept reading. An ephah would be enough to feed two women for five days. He paid her 
five days worth of pay for one day's worth of work. He's smitten by this girl. And he's going to buy her back or win her back some way. She goes home and she takes this bushel and lays it at Ruth's feet. Where have you been working? Because you're going to go back there again. I've been working for this guy named Boaz. Light goes on, small town. Everyone knows everyone. I know Boaz. He's a redeemer. I'll explain that in a moment. Because the focus isn't on the redeemer Boaz. The focus here is on God. In spite of the darkness, in spite of the pain, she sees God. Verse 20, chapter 2. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord. She didn't stop believing in God. She believed that God was going to bless him and take care of him. She believed that the good God was coming through whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. That's us. His kindness. The Lord's kindness. The Lord's going to bless him. The Lord's going to take care of us. This word kindness is used of God more in Scripture in the Old Testament. It's one of the most beautiful statements of God. I'm not even going to develop it. If you want to do a word study this week, study the Hebrew word for kindness, the loving kindness. It's the most holy uh, act of God. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And it is the idea. I'm going to save it for next week. That's next week's message. Okay. But here, hang on to that. Hang on to that word for next week. But let's focus on this week. And this week is this. Even though Naomi had all the reasons in the world and in her emotions to, to write God off, she didn't. And she points out to young Ruth, the Moabitess woman, how God is still good. Even though life has been unfair, God is still good. Here's where he's been good. He continues to provide for us. And he's going to bless Boaz the same. Trauma has a way. If we can rise above it and we look beyond it, we can see God through it. Psychiatrist Jonathan Haidt said it like this, trauma shatters belief systems, robs people of their sense of meaning, In doing so, it forces people to put the pieces back together. Often, they do it by turning to God. Trauma has a way of bringing us back to God, helping us to see God maybe in a different way. Elizabeth Elliot buried two of her husbands. One was killed by the Aki Indians, and many of you all know her story. She's an amazing, godly woman who just recently went to be with the Lord. But when she was reflecting on the life of Job, one time she wrote this about all of her pain, all the Job's pain. She said this, God is God. He, if he is God, he is worthy of all my worship, my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion that he is up to. Listen, God is God. God is God. In spite the pain, in spite the loss, in spite the unfairness, look through it, find God, see his goodness, see his provision. If only it's just a glimmer, and that's exactly what Naomi was seeing. If it's just a glimmer, latch on to it. Number three, see Jesus. See Jesus in your pain. Now, this may seem a little bit strange because Ruth was written in the, in the last half of the 12th century B.C., before Christ. So how do we see Jesus? 
And this is where I'm not going to do this, the, the, this study justice. But really, the book of Ruth tells the story of this Boaz guy who comes in as a redeemer. It's a powerful story because it goes back to the leveret marriage of the Jewish system that whenever you were married and if, if your husband died, that, that your relative, closest relative could come in and marry your wife, not because it's kind of some sick something, something going on, but to take care of her, to redeem the property that has been, that has, uh, that has been lost maybe through the death. Leviticus 25, 25 says it like this. If your brother becomes poor and sells all of his property, then the nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. The redeemer, the redeemer. What's all, what's all that in Leviticus 25, 25 about? 19 different times in the book of Ruth, we find the word redeem, redeemer. Boaz is a, is a type of Christ. He is a picture of Christ. Because Elimelech, as he goes and he, and he passes away, and Naomi and, Ruth are, and, and, and Ruth's husband passes away, they're like, they're poor. They have nothing. They don't have any land. Their land is mortgaged and they can't get back to it and they don't have any way of making money. They're going to be living off people. They're going to be living on charity the rest of their life unless something steps in, unless somebody redeems the situation. And under that first right of refusal kind of opportunity to marry the, 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 the bereaved widow, Boaz steps up. Now, there's several things you need to know about Boaz and how it's similar to Christ and how he redeems us. And the picture is, is that as Naomi and Ruth are suffering, pain is in their life. So we suffer because sin is in our life. And and just as Boaz steps into the scene and redeems the situation for Ruth and Naomi, so Jesus steps into our life and redeems us from our brokenness. Real quickly, let me give you five characteristics of how they're similar. One, there has to be a debt to be owed. They had land back in Bethlehem that they couldn't get to. They couldn't have it. They couldn't own it again. And so they needed that land just like we have sin in our lives. There's a debt in our lives for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. That sin is debt against God and we, we need somebody. The Redeemer must be related. God is our creator. We are related to him by his creation, but yet there is this brokenness because of sin. And just like Boaz is related to Naomi, he's related to Ruth. So he has to step in. We need someone who has the means and the willingness. And if you go on and you read the story in chapter 4, you'll find how the person who was actually next in line to take on Ruth didn't have enough money to, to buy the debt that was, upon, uh, was on Ruth and Naomi. But Boaz did. He had the means and he was willing. Listen, this is the most beautiful part of the, of the comparison is that this, is there's only one person in all. There's only one entity in all. There's only one being in all of all of all who could pay for all of our sin debt. And he has the means, and it is Jesus Christ. For there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone. Boaz steps up whenever the other redeemer couldn't step up. You must be able to remove the squatters from the land. 
That was an interesting find that I found. And I got to thinking about that. Who is squatting in our life? But the author of sin and pain, Satan. Listen, John 8, 36, the son has set you free. You're free indeed. Romans 8, 2, the spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus. Number five is the motivation of love. There's a motivating love there. Boaz wanted to marry Ruth. We are called the bride of Christ. Repeat, say John 3, 16 with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's a motivation of love. There's this love relationship that is beautiful and awesome and that happens right there before our eyes. Corey Timboom talks about as a, she, she lived in a Nazi death camp. Now, I want you to hear what she said. I think it's a beautiful picture of this. If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you'll be at rest. That's why I say, see and say your emotions. What are you feeling? What are you going through? Look for the goodness of God in the dark clouds of despair. And then look for Jesus. Look for Jesus. He's the one who's going to redeem us from the painful past that we may be living in. Number four, and I'm done. Look for God's unveiled, undisclosed future. What happens in the next chapter is beautiful. And the beautiful thing about pain, and the beautiful thing about God's grace, and the beautiful thing about God's working is sometimes we go through these dark seasons of pain. But if we do those other elements, if we don't get lost in our own emotions but, and we don't lose faith in God and walk away from God, but if we keep things in check, we can anticipate that God's going to be do something beautiful on the other side. Jot this down. Let me read it out loud to you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. The God of all grace, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong. Restoration. After you suffered for a while, after you've gone through the pain, if you've gone through the agony, listen, the God of all grace will restore you, give you life again, give you hope again. The first 72 words of the book of Ruth, listen to this, are about death and destruction. The last 70 words of Ruth are about life and hope. It's a story of Boaz marrying Ruth. And they marry and they conceive and they give birth to a child. I wonder if you could write out your life in one sentence. Think about that as I read verse 13 to 17 from chapter 4. So Boaz <clears throat> took Ruth and she became his wife and he went uh, to her. And the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, then a woman said to Naomi. Naomi's been talking a lot up until this point, but now somebody's talking to Naomi. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you 
the restorer of life and the nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighbor, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. There is so much in this passage. It's a message unto itself. David, the greatest king that Israel has ever known, is the grandchild of Obed. You talk about a name that's going to be great for years and years and years. And oh, by the way, do you know who came from the lineage of David, who came from the lineage of Ruth, but Jesus, the Messiah, who was born in this same town of Bethlehem? Sometimes, see, here's the, we don't see the future. So that's why we have to trust the person. Let me say this to you again. We don't see the future, so we have to trust the person. We don't see what the, all the pain and why is all this there and why it all makes sense, but because we're looking for the goodness of God, not the badness and the unfairness of God, we're looking for the goodness of God because we're looking for Jesus and His redemption work in us, because we're looking for that, we're going to begin to see a future that's going to be brighter than the past. I only have time to tell you the story behind Jeremiah 29, 11, what we quote most of the time. When the people are still in captivity, God is saying, I'm going to give you hope. But I want to focus on that last phrase, the restorer of your life. I, here's what I want you to do. Take the rest of your notes, and I want to ask you two questions. And during our response time today, I don't, I don't want a lot of moving around. This is a time where God is going to solidify this message in people's life, lives. I, I want you to answer these two questions. And you may need, need to stay seated. I'm going to invite everyone to stand, but you may need to stay seated and just begin to articulate your life in a sentence. One, what is your shattered dream? I thought my family was going to look like this. I thought my career was going to look like this. I thought my health was going to look like this. I thought, I thought, I thought, just as Naomi did. I thought it was a good move to go to Moab. I thought, what's your shattered dream? But because you have your gaze fixed on His goodness, because you're looking for your Redeemer, because He has a beautiful future for your life, what is your restored dream? He's the restorer of your life. If you've been broken and bruised, I can't promise you that you're not going to have scars. If you've experienced loss and betrayal, I can't promise you that all the wounds and all the scabs and all are going to go away. I can't promise you that. But I can promise you this, that God wants to restore and move into your life and do something so beautiful as you see and say your emotions as you look for His goodness, as you look for Jesus, the Redeemer of all of us, and as you anticipate His future for us. Would you bow your head with me? During this time, you may want to just sit and just write and reflect, and that's okay. Or you may want to stand and sing and pray for those around you who are right now struggling in their own pit of depression and pain. And that's okay.
Father God, this is your time and we are your people and we want you to do great things here. We are giving ourselves fully to you to speak, to move, to work, to heal, to restore our lives where we've experienced inexpressible pain, unfathomable hurt. We're trusting and believing that you, the good God, (laughs) that you, the Redeemer of all mankind, will redeem us from our own brokenness that we brought on ourselves, our own pain that we brought on ourselves, our own sin that we brought on ourselves, that has inflicted pain in our life again and again and again, that you will redeem us. And Lord, we anticipate your future. We thank you for the story of Ruth. We thank you for the story that you're writing on each of us today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and sing or sit and write and pray. This is your time.